Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Over the last year or so, interest in carbon removal, or CDR, has taken off. From the formation of new corporate buying coalitions like Frontier, to large venture rounds, and ambitious new policies like direct air capture hubs, CDR is starting to hit an inflection point. All of this early traction is really encouraging, but it also necessitates taking a step back and reflecting on the carbon removal industry as it stands today and where it should go from here. It requires revisiting questions that some of us working in the industry with all the recent activity and excitement take for granted. Like what is carbon removal's role? How should we define CDR? How should corporates think about supporting the burgeoning CDR market? Is it accurate to say there's a CDR market in the first place? I'm excited to speak to today's guests because they bring a degree of clarity in a market that still feels shrouded in obscurity. They work on Milky Wire's Climate Transformation Fund, supporting catalytic solutions, including permanent carbon removal, that are needed to reach global climate targets. In their capacity, they have worked through pretty foundational questions about CDR and have valuable insights to share on how we should be defining carbon removal, the state of the market today, and key priorities for the industry going forward. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my newsletter at carboncurve.substack.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, my guests are Robert Hoagland and Dr. Natalia Yarlabring. Robert is an independent consultant dedicated to advancing the carbon removal ecosystem through writing about it, working on research and policy projects, as well as running carbon removal trainings. He also manages the Climate Transformation Fund at Milky Wire, a donation fund that supports CDR and other climate projects. Robert previously headed Oxfam Sweden's policy and communications team and took part in the science-based target initiatives Net Zero Standard Expert Advisory Group and sits on the board of the research program at Mistra Sustainable Consumption. Dr. Natalia Yarlabring is a senior environmental lead at the tech platform Milky Wire. She holds a PhD in environmental science from Södertörn University in Sweden. Her research focused on various aspects of natural resource governance, as well as forest-related policy debates and its implications for the EU climate commitments. Natalia also has extensive experience working as a consultant in natural resource management and climate adaptation solutions. Robert, Natalia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. I was really excited to talk to you both today about how you all are thinking about and defining carbon removal. And in June, you published a post entitled, Nature Restoration and Carbon Removal Are Not the Same. Here's Why It Matters. Take us through that argument. How do you define carbon removal versus nature restoration? And I'll start with you, Robert. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so obviously we need to remove a lot of carbon in addition to reducing emissions, both because of all the past emissions, but also because we can't eliminate all of it. And a lot of the emissions that are happening and has happened in the past are, are from the are fossil fuels, sort of the long carbon cycle, uh, taking them out in the ground and adding into the atmosphere. And there's, then there's a short carbon cycle, which of course uh, does a great job of taking up a lot of C2 from, from the atmosphere and also releases back a lot. But if you increase, for example, the amount of land that's covered with forests, or if you increase the carbon stocks in soils, you do take out some carbon of the atmosphere and can store it for uh, some time in the biosphere. 
but then the carbon is, is stored in the in the short carbon cycle and it's also at a high risk of reversal so also with a warming climate there's uh, increasing risks from for example forest fires or diseases uh, that, that these trees can die soils can also release the carbon quite easily back into the atmosphere so although it's an indispensable part of the solution uh, to solving the climate crisis we think that it's it's good to clear up the definitions a little bit and talk about carbon that's stored in the biosphere as more carbon restoration and reserve the term carbon removal for carbon that's actually taken out and stored in a very durable way away from the short carbon cycle. So for example, uh, sequestered underground, uh, mineralized or in other ways where, where that carbon, carbon is very durably stored. So if you would emit fossil fuels then and you wanted to say that you're carbon neutral or reach a net zero target and it's fossil emissions that you're emitting, then you would need to remove that carbon and not just restore carbon back to biospheres. So we wouldn't want, for example, a fossil fuel company like um, selling gasoline to say that this is this is a net zero fuel or we're a carbon neutral company and releasing all this uh, fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere and they're claiming this neutrality on the basis of, of just planting trees and sort of in the more insecure and high risk of reversal solution. I think that framing is so helpful, the long carbon cycle and the short carbon cycle. And I think the argument you make around why that's so important then that when we burn fossil fuels, we're affecting the long carbon cycle. Uh, we can't, you know, claim to offset that by enhancing the short carbon cycle. It, it's not a one-to-one -one, and that's, I think, really important. So Natalia, can you tell us a little bit about how this definition of carbon removal got so murky and what's, you know, as a co-author of this piece, what did you see as the value in changing the vocabulary on carbon removal in this way? Yes. So I wish I could give you a very short and concise answer to this very important question, I think. But then one would probably need to look at the whole history of climate negotiations and also science behind how we actually count or how this kind of credits are counted and accounted for. And um, but I guess what's important to mention here is the Kyoto Protocol, which is a policy process within UN UNFCCC Convention that um, created this initial space for carbon markets. And what it essentially tried to do is to put a price tag on the carbon, making it a commodity which can be traded. And initially the idea was that it will be developed in a fully functional market when you, know, you have your offer and then you have your buyers and then, yeah, and that the price for this carbon also will be fair. But unfortunately, it didn't really happen in practice. And uh, what uh, this emission trading scheme under the Kyoto Protocol essentially turned into is a race to the bottom to a large extent, where a lot of cheap and sometimes very low quality, as we call them, carbon credits were put on the market. And this essentially um, dro drove price of carbon um, to a very low price, which kind of didn't make any sense. And then essentially the process was kind of paused and, and barred to, to a large extent because uh, it didn't really work out. And that um, also these credits, there wasn't really any quality assurance marked uh, attached to them. So these credits were not necessarily the best credits or long-lasting credits. And often they were generated through this kind of 
tree planting solution, not even uh, restoration as we would like to see it when the complex solutions are proposed um, to kind of restore and function in ecosystems, but rather focusing, oh, we put one million trees on the ground and claiming that's what will um, solve our climate crisis, which again, we know that putting a tree on the ground doesn't actually mean necessarily that this tree will become a forest, which will, what we would want to see to then claim there is the carbon, yeah, carbon cycle uh, addressed. So, um, and that's of course, um, it did change a little bit with the Paris Agreement and this, uh, the Article 6 that is proposed, which sets the more kind of voluntary space for both countries and private actors to engage in this carbon markets. Uh, so hopefully that will create a better sort of space for it, for creating this functional system of trading carbon credits. And why I think it's important to, to actually divide vocabulary in this way. Unfortunately, it, as much as I'm a fan of nature-based solutions and as much as I think they're important, certainly in addressing climate crisis and biodiversity crisis, which we should not forget about, but uh, this kind of race to the bottom and so, um, so have a focus on these um, cheap solutions also led to the fact that there were quite limited financing available for experimenting with them other other methods of removing um, carbon from the atmosphere and we certainly now it's clear from from science and science clearly tells us that we need to look at this and we need to speed up technology also that helps us to address this so you you talk about some of the need to invest in um, some of these engineered solutions to carbon removal I, i'm curious to know what do you see as the potential risks of adopting a definition of carbon removal that does not include some of these nature restoration approaches? I think that what we saw as an initial as a feedback to the article with the proposal was that there was a certain confusion that by proposing this like distinction between short and long-term carbon cycles, um, somehow we try to discredit the nature restoration as a solution, which is certainly not the case. What we are trying to do here is actually say that it, perhaps it caters to different sort of needs <laughs> and different emission sources rather than needs maybe. And this distinction will help us essentially to improve our move towards the climate targets, this global net zero targets that we want all, I guess, to achieve. So, and I think that's, that's what, in our opinion, is the major risk of having this uh, definition adopted, yeah. Yeah, that's really important. I, and I think that framing just needs to be re-emphasized, right? And I feel like, as far as I'm concerned, I feel like we tried to put way too many different kind of pathways uh, into one bucket. Uh, and when we look at, you know, some of the carbon removal pathways that we would maybe now try to describe as nature restoration, we can see them as more complete or holistic approaches to addressing climate and ecological problems in a way that something like direct air capture that really just has one job, for example, as, as just doing that job of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it away for a long duration. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very important point that you shouldn't be singularly focused on the carbon aspect of nature restoration solutions, uh, although it can definitely play an important role there. You shouldn't go out and, and plant a forest just because you want the carbon. It also has to make sense 
uh, from other aspects that you actually you know want to restore biodiversity or that uh, there's a there's a need for forest here there used to be maybe a forest here and then of course there's a lot of other solutions uh, that could bring back carbon but that would primarily be done for other reasons like restoring wildlife like whales for example or or elephants that uh, through how they act actually also store carbon in ecosystems yeah and it just feels like by not getting clear on this definition early on, we have basically used, you know, all of these different complex and sophisticated natural processes, and we have defined their value by their carbon removal potential. And mm. that to me actually shortchanges them because there's just so much more that they offer. And there's so much more complexity there that looking at it from a purely kind of carbon removal, carbon credit point of view, sells them actually a little short, but I can totally yeah. see how someone might, might look at it the other way. So I, I'm really curious about how all of this kind of filtered into your thinking as part of, you know, Milky Wire's Climate Transformation Fund's leadership. Tell us more about this Climate Transformation Fund and your recent round of carbon removal purchases. Did your views on this particular definition of carbon removal inform your purchase decisions? And, and if so, how? Um, so Climate Transformation Fund actually started about a year ago, and it's hard to say maybe the article was actually a result of our work and our kind of engagement with the topic. When we So essentially what we do in Climate Transformation Fund, we op offer companies a solution to contribute to global net zero, so to get away from the perhaps sometimes unhelpful claims for carbon offsetting or um, climate neutrality at the company level, which often uh, don't say you much, but rather that they allocate the funds they want to contribute uh, to, to fighting climate change into this fund that helps them to, to finance the most impactful project that helps to achieve global net zero. And uh, we invest in three types of solution is um, durable carbon removal, where a lot of, for example, direct air capture goes under, then um, restoring and protecting nature. And here we also want to emphasize as a protecting part, because it's also important and shouldn't be for forgotten that actually prote protecting the primeval forest or intact ecosystems are extremely important to kind of maintain the carbon cycle, ecological cycle. So we, we recognize this here too. And finally, decarbonization projects, basically those that help to avoid emissions or sorry, reduce emissions, as for example, some uh, renewable energy solutions that are till today are not really profitable, but have a great potential. Uh, so that's how we reason behind and maybe Robert can talk a little more about uh, our recent selection round and allocation of funds. Yeah. We both try to let's say seed and scale, and, and this fund is set up to reflect the needs of climate finance in general. So we need to have a lot more climate dollars going to to all of free, these three buckets. And I also want, want to highlight advocacy policy as part of the decarbonization because that can be a very effective way of actually uh, reducing emissions. So, but in carbon removal, uh, we supported both new solutions, being a very early purchaser. And I should mention that uh, the fintech Klarna has been the main supporter of the of the fund. So it's a lot of their money, although we have some other donors to the fund now as well. Uh, so getting new solutions tested, new carbon removal providers that can go out and, and get their first fund removed 
and also scaling up the sort of um, solutions that are slightly uh, ahead, like Bioshar, which can also be a more durable solution, and then finding very good uh, carbon restoration uh, products where you you actually do things in in, in line with with nature and, and other objectives as well. I've been really impressed with the forward thinking approach that you've taken with this fund, and it's great to hear that the article and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes that we're, we're talking about here has been informed by a few rounds of practice as you all have kind of, you know, worked through these really difficult thorny issues about what to support. But what I really like about your approach is that you're encouraging companies to go beyond just negating their carbon ledger and trying to get them to find a way to catalyze broader change. And I think that's really important. And I think that's where the, you know, the, the corporate sector's involvement in supporting carbon removal can just go so much farther than uh, meeting some ESG requirements, which are important for them to do or go beyond um, meeting some of the net zero claims that they have, but that they can, they can play a really critical role in scaling up technology that is going to be fundamental to addressing climate change over the long term. And it's been really cool to watch you all take that approach and do a great job of communicating the value, because I think a lot of companies don't immediately understand the value that they can have by supporting some of these emerging technologies mm. and, and approaches that, again, go towards our global climate goals, not just corporate climate goals, right? Mm. Mm. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can see that with others as well. Like if Stripe, for example, and Shopify had only cared about offsetting their 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 own footprint, then we probably wouldn't have uh, such a sort of thriving CDR ecosystem now, actually. So uh, that uh, can really show us the benefit of the approach as well. Yeah, that, that shift in mindset's been been really critical to carbon removal's early success. And, and Robert, you're a, a self-described fan of effective altruism. And we're actually seeing a lot of thought pieces out there in the world around effective altruism and this, this movement around giving. So... Give me the effective altruist's case for supporting carbon removal. Yeah, so effective altruism really, um, I think, influenced my way of thinking of how to support products in the best way, looking at you know, things like expected value, um, not just what, what you get now, but actually supporting things that might be a little bit more uncertain because the, the potential of that product is really, really high and that the long-term effect is gonna could be really great. So that's the kind of thinking we we have at with the fund. And then effective altruism is about you know trying to do as much good as possible. Climate crisis, of course, one of the, the really big challenges, and and carbon removal is is one uh, of the tools that we need to have in, in toolbox to be able to to solve the crisis. And therefore, there must go some amount of support to carbon removal uh, and trying to figure out how to give that support in the best way. I think is by catalyzing new solutions and sort of trying to find where we can our money can do the the most impact but by supporting these organizations but yeah with that said i i don't claim to say that carbon removal is the most effective thing uh, of all like i, I think uh, you shouldn't compare it to malaria bed nets or something like that uh, you should more think about what kind of problems are there and how can we solve them right and it looks like there's room for embracing some of the uncertainty that comes with carbon removal and it can still be one effective way of addressing climate change but it, it does sound like there's a long-term value in supporting carbon removal today 
that can have this kind of snowball effect down the road that makes it a smart donation for a company or an individual to make um, in, mm. in addressing climate change. Would you say that's right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And any money that goes into such an early sector is going to have a lot more leverage than, than later dollars, because now you're helping to catalyze these new solutions. Uh, you can bring them forward several years, uh, get new solutions tested that no one might have funded. So I think you can really have a huge leverage now uh, where you will have the same leverage later when it's more about scaling up. It's still going to be needed. But if you're caring about how much effect you're getting from your dollars, then being early is not such a bad thing. Yeah. And in my view, it just feels like this this decade, you know, because we think about climate and this this work is going to, you know, it's going to be decades, centuries long. Mm. But you think about this decade in relation to carbon removal, in my view, this is this is the opportunity to learn. This is the opportunity to try different things. Um, you know, set aside what fails, double down on what works, and create a strong leverage case for investment, as you put it, because that's where our focus really needs to be right now. Because I, I think to your mm. point, you know, the progress we make now can really compound as we think about scaling in the decades ahead. And so the, the work we do today is absolutely critical to a successful scale up of the carbon removal industry longer term. Um, so, you know, in, in like contrast to that, you know, we see companies engaging in this race to the bottom, right, to meet their net zero commitments by buying cheap carbon offsets. So what is the pitch that you give companies on why they should adopt Milky Wire's approach instead? It's really about trying to create as much climate impact as possible. Rather than asking yourself, how can I fulfill a commitment as cheaply as possible? Try to see how can I, you know, make as much good as possible with the money I have available. And when you do that, uh, it opens up the possibility to support new solutions, for example, new technologies, riskier things like advocacy and, uh, and, and policy projects uh, and other things. But it is really that kind of constraint. If you're just trying to figure out how can I buy credits that makes me uh, make a claim, then, then you are quite limited. You're not going to be able to support any types of new solutions. You might get incentives to, to buy uh, very cheap and, and potentially low quality projects. So by focusing on, on effect, uh, on impact, uh, you are setting yourself up for, for much greater success in terms of the good you do in the world. Natalia, what would you, what would you add, if anything, to that? I um, certainly think that, you know, even if you are as a private company, of course, care about the profits, right? But at the same time, you do live on the planet Earth. And we know, again, from science, from all their uh, things pointing, we are in crisis. So it's essentially not only kind of meeting the company commitments, but also what you as a, for example, as a leader of the company, as the CEO can do also to help solve this existential crisis to some extent. So I think it goes really beyond. And if you all start thinking going beyond this kind of doing as cheap as possible the minimum we kind of require so maybe we can actually solve this all together so yeah yeah and i i think another article that really gave me pause uh, recently was something you wrote robert on your blog and we'll provide a link to that as well uh, the carbon removal market doesn't exist and you know you you continuously hear about the carbon removal market but your argument is 
it doesn't really exist yet. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you want to go out and, and buy, say, 100,000 tons of permanent carbon removal, you can't do that. Uh, the, te the technology is not ready yet and the deployment is not there. We see some early actors that have been starting to remove a few tons. But I think the, the analogy I, I make uh, repeatedly is that it's like kickstarter.com or like Indiegogo, where you're supporting new technologies, you're putting money into that because you believe in it, you think it's a, it's a worthwhile pursuit. You might support your favorite author and sort of pre-purchase uh, his or her book for you know several hundred dollars uh, to get a signed copy or something like that, and you're sort of overpaying for it. But that's because you, you think that this support will make this uh, possible. It wouldn't make sense for you to sort of go out perhaps and sell the right to that book to someone else. It's not a tradable market. Uh, it's much more a situation where the actors who want to support carbon removal should try to see uh, how can we maximize the, the impact that we have? Uh, what are the solutions that we want to see be tested, uh, be tried out, be, be built out? Um, and it's not a commodity at all. And there's also extreme differences between different types of uh, approaches in, in terms of their cost today. I think a lot of people actually look at the, the cost and, and, and sort of make the, uh, take, make the wrong conclusions. They see heirlooms sold their tons for $2,000 per ton and like, how can that be so expensive? But I mean, this kind of early purchases is, is more a way of um, giving an R&D support, but it's, uh, it's in the way of, of making a procurement because that's easier. It might be beneficial for the companies, but you shouldn't go out and compare companies on a, on a cost by ton by ton basis because what you're doing is pre-purchasing prototypes uh, and sort of what goes into that cost can be very very different from from different companies so it will be a market at, at some point but we're definitely not there yet people want to start the race and get get start running but we're still you know behind the starting line where we're training new athletes we're calling people uh you know on the stadium to maybe come down and compete too and we don't know what solutions will be will be successful uh, there might be solutions that we haven't even tried yet that's going to be the sort of biggest carbon removal solutions in later this century so i think we're still definitely in a phase where we need to focus a lot on, on fundamental research focus on figuring out how what solutions make sense and also if they make sense on a more kind of system perspective is this the best use of the resource that we have both say biomass and, and energy before we start some kind of very large scale deployment. And there's also things around risks for some methods that we haven't fully figured out. Um, and also questions around like the possibility to, to measure it and how effective it actually is. So to put money into carbon removal, more people should be focused on it. We should definitely scale up the funding and scale up the sort of um, the prototyping. But I think it might be a bit too early to go into sort of the growth phase some solutions could could scale up a bit, like Bioshark can definitely do it um, if it's in the right projects. Not all Bioshark projects are good; should add to. But we should definitely think think of it as, as something that's uh, you know developing and, and that we'll we'll start to race later on when we have I think uh, all the con more contestants sort of ready and, and figured out. Loving these analogies, Robert. But this is yeah, this is exactly right. Um, a new initiative recently emerged called CDR.FYI that reveal some price discovery for, for carbon removal, which I think is critical precondition to establishing a carbon removal market. Uh, can you tell us more about its genesis and why it might serve as a key component to a functioning CDR market? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a website where you can see all the purchases of durable car removal and who is selling and, and who is buying and also at what cost and what volume and, and what is being delivered and whatnot. It's uh, it's built built mainly by a guy called Kevin Niparko. Uh, it really did a great job of visualizing this. And the original thing that I built uh, back in January was uh, just a, a Google sheet with a lot of this information, just listing all the publicly known carbon removal purchases. So putting a link there and seeing uh, how much has been bought by whom. And now this website visualizes that, and it also brings in uh, carbon removal purchases from some other databases via API. So it's going to be uh, more comprehensive. And the data sheet that I built is uh, now incorporated with, with CDR.FYI, and it's going to be a lot easier for people to, to follow this non-existent market you know and see how how it grows and, and see what happens and who's in the leaderboard and you can make you can draw some conclusions when looking at that seeing that i mean there's only a handful of buyers like a dozen or so that made any uh, larger purchases of carbon removal at least known ones uh, and then we're talking about uh, over a hundred thousand dollars at least which is quite small for most companies but still it's just a dozen or so that even even done these kind of purchases and the volumes of course that we're talking about is ridiculously small my best estimate of, of durable carbon removal uh, from in 2021 that was removed and, and sold as such it's also important addition uh, it's around 50,000 tons and others have made similar assessments. I think they will multiple this year, but still, of course, it's it's absolutely nothing so far. It really is. And just to clarify, it was in 2021, you're saying by your, your estimates in the range of 50,000 tons sold, not necessarily delivered. Is that right? No, that, that's what I, I, think, I think was removed. And then it's mostly Bioshar. Um, so, but the majority of the tons that are sold or pre-purchased or um, off-take agreements are not delivered. So it, it's, uh, you know, 10% or something like that. So we have a really, really, really long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. We need really fast growth rates <laughs> for cover removal. So, I mean, I, I understand like in the last question I said, we're not ready to scale, which can be super frustrating to, or maybe sounds contradictory. When on the one hand I say that, and on the other hand, looking at how small it is and how fast it has to grow. But yeah, we can't scale up the wrong solutions or solutions where we don't exactly know what are the, the consequences. That could also be a huge backlash. We see a little bit of that for some solutions where there is uh, some backlash because uh, all the scientific questions might not have been figured out and people are running a little bit ahead of themselves and then that gives, gives a backlash. So yeah, there's a need to be careful. That makes a lot of sense. So as our last question here, you know, we're more than halfway through 2022. What do you both see as trends in the CDR space going forward? And in addition, where do you see Milky Wire playing a role? And maybe I'll start with you, Natalia. Yes. So if I may talk on nature-based solution, I think there is certainly a positive trend where uh, there is a lot more attention to quality of the solution. So uh, kind of going away to this idea of planting as many trees as cheaply as possible, but rather looking at what these products do on the ground, talking a lot more about um, kind of holistic view on ecosystem restoration. And I think that's what we need uh, going forward. That's of course also means it is probably more expensive, right? And that's also needs 
to attract more financing and maybe you know there there should be also demand uh, demand and supply for this i think that i would like to echo a little bit what robert said we should certainly in this race of trying to dispatch solution quick solutions quickly we shouldn't forget about risks right both kind of that we need to figure out science when we when we deploy some solutions but also risks that relate to kind of um this justice component of this uh, climate transitions, right? So whenever, whatever solutions we are talking about, we shouldn't forget that they do not exist in the vacuum. And it's not only about carbon removal, even if we are talking about, um, yeah, uh, different um, different solutions, be it long or short <laughs> um, term or nature restoration or carbon removal solutions. So I think this is something that I'd like to point. Hmm. Oh, that's great. It's good to see that that shift in focus that that's happening around um, around ecosystem restoration. That's really great. Robert, anything you'd add? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest this year as well, growing and, and very important initiatives launched earlier this year and, and last now with, with US and the new 45Q, for example, that gives up to $180 per ton stored underground if you have a direct air capture facility. So I think they'll probably do a lot in sort of getting new projects uh, off the ground. But so far, the companies that are, are building carbon removal facilities are still, you know, um, going from the lab, putting their first facilities into the ground. Climeworks has one, but I think in this year and next year, we'll see some others that going out and capturing maybe one ton per day or 10 tons per day, that, those kind of scales, uh, testing out the new solutions. And I think that's going to be very informative to see these carbon removal things happening. There's been a lot of talk for the last few years about what could work and sort of uh, how would it look in practice and now we'll see more and more solutions actually be tested out in practice uh, also not just for direct air capture but also people that are starting to apply for example um, basalt and other minerals on, on farmland and they're testing how that affects the, the crops uh, and how if you can measure how much carbon is, is removed Project Vesta is doing the same large uh, trials now in oceans and getting information that they will be able to to publish so i think we'll get a lot of real world data and a lot of real world knowledge on how these kind of theoretical approaches are going to work out of course there's new new questions that arise and sort of things that we might not have thought about but it's it's really crucial we want to speed that up as much as possible uh, through milky wire as well so um, supporting new new types of projects that yeah needs to needs to go out there and, and, and be, be be done in practice that's really great. And I should also ask, how can folks keep up with you and the work that you're doing at Milky Wire's uh, Climate Transformation Fund? And how can they learn more? Yeah, so we'll link to the Climate Transformation Fund, I think, in the, in the show notes. And we're also putting out a progress report from the first year's procurements and donations. So doing a follow-up and see how, how that's going since the last year. Uh, so that's available. And then I also write uh, about carbon removal uh, ecosystem and on Medium and other places. Great. And we'll, we'll put in all the relevant links there. Thank you both for your time today. Please keep up this great thought leadership. And just thank you for what you're doing. The CDR industry, I think, really benefits from the work that you put out there. Thank you. And the same thank to you. you. Uh, I think thank we really like Point and you put a lot of great resources in the last year or so. Thank you both for being on. Thank you. Thanks.